So in true mom form, I wrote out notes for announcements because I knew that I was making them today and then forgot it at home. So I have my phone with me to hopefully catch everything that I'm supposed to. <laughs> um, a few things first. If you haven't already, feel free to grab a program that's back by the coffee. Um, in here we have our Kid City News. We also have a Bible bookmark that this one has a pretty sticker on it. Um, this is something that we're doing as a church over time, and uh, we welcome you guys to join us. Even better if you're into saving the environment and getting things on your phone, um, we have an awesome app, which is, uh, you can search in the iPhone store, We Are Restore, or if you have an Android, you can search We Are Restore eChurch. This is also a great place to connect. You can uh, give on the app, you can find the scripture readings uh, along the bottom. You just hit real easy, hit today's scripture, and it'll take you straight to whatever the scripture is for that day. Um, and we would love to hear from you. So if you, you can either fill out a connection card, whether you want to uh, submit a prayer request, or if you want to do that through the app, you can do that through that too. Uh, we want to be part of your lives and walk with you. So please, please, please um, connect with us if you haven't already. Also, we will ask if you aren't supporting Restore financially and would love to do that, we would love for you to do that. So please feel free to give. You can give through the app. You can go to wearerestore.com and click on Give and give through there. Um, if you don't feel like giving to Restore right now is your calling, then please be sure to open your wallet and your heart to a cause that is dear to you. Um, you know, we hope that that's us, but... To, we, we just want to be sure that we're being generous in the way that Jesus was. So um, we ask that you do that as well. Uh, even better, if you want to turn on automated giving and recurring giving, even better. Um, a, couple of <laughs> a couple other announcements. Um, we have a Bible study that started a, almost a month, a couple weeks ago, um, that's being led by our very own Zach Stein. You want to raise your hand? On the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Woo! Um, it's for both men and women. It's re meeting at our living room space, which is in downtown Silver Spring, not far from here, on Tuesday nights from 7.30 to 9 p.m. So please come join uh, in that Bible study with us. Last week, um, we had an info session for our mission trip, our refugee support trip, I should say, that is coming up August 8th through 15th. Um, if you missed that and are interested in going, please reach out. You can... Uh, fill out a connection card or email Aaron at Aaron at restore we are restore .com, uh, and he will get you all caught up uh, it's going to be a great trip we're parent we are teaming with our sister church from Baltimore the Foundry Church uh, and we'll be going to support uh, the local Greek efforts in resettling Syrian refugees so it's going to be a really great opportunity uh, and last but not least the women's retreat Woo! Uh, is coming up the first weekend in April. Um, this is a last call for a registration. If you haven't registered yet and are interested in going, the registration deadline is Tuesday. Uh, it's going to be in Harper's Ferry. It's going to be a great time, uh, lots of great women, and fully I'm going, though I realized I am one of those ones I was like, I'm going and haven't yet registered, so I'm going to register today. <laughs> um, it was on my calendar. Um, so if you are interested in going, feel free to reach out to Carrie or talk to some of the other women who are around who may be interested in getting you involved. And I think that that's the last announcement that I had, so I'm going to turn it over to our very own Aaron Toss.
Good evening, everybody. I know the sound of my voice is like nails on a chalkboard. <clears throat> as soon as I spoke, he started crying. All right. Um, I was going to say we had a special guest here, Henry, but he already took off. He had to leave at five. It was good to have Henry back today with us. And then also, uh, some of our bigger supporters are here. Uh, I just want to introduce you to the Weavers over here. I'm going to call them out without letting them know I was going to do that. They're from Plainfield Christian Church, who have supported Restore financially for the last seven, eight years. Uh, in- incredible generosity. And uh, Riley's the missions director at, at, at Plainfield Christian, so we're excited to have them here tonight. Um, I have a few resources that I want to point out before we dive in that I used for today's sermon. Um, There's a great book called Unapologetic by Francis Buford. Um, One of the one of my favorite writers. um, I think the best apologetics book out there. Quark's Chaos and Christianity by John Polkinghorn. He's a Anglican priest and a scientist. And then Letters from a Skeptic by Greg Boyd and then Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. This is a classic. <clears throat> we are in the middle of the season of Lent, a six-week season of lament. And it's the season where we're not only acknowledging the death of Jesus Christ that's uh, upcoming in the season. It, it culminates on um, Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. But we, it's a practice, it's a season where we can embrace the emotion of darkness and violence and injustice that our Lord and King went through. And it's a season on the church calendar that is designed to decenter us. All right? it, it's meant to shake something loose, to break us down, um, get, stretch us outside of our comfort zones. And sometimes that can be enjoyable, and sometimes things happen in the world or around us in our lives that just don't make any sense. Um, and, you know, that happened again this weekend with the, the mass shooting in New Zealand, where uh, I'd love to say I'm shocked. I'm not. Um, the amount of hatred that is in the world, uh, it, it can be overwhelming. And so I just want to begin today by praying um, about that and about the people who are suffering from this. Will you join me? Uh, Lord, another tra- a tragedy took place, this time in New Zealand. Uh, another hate-filled man with guns walked into a religious gathering and murdered dozens of innocent people. And this, and this time it was Muslims um, in the middle of a worship gathering. And we, Lord, we mourn with them. Um, we pray through your power that the world would be emptied of this kind of hate and replaced with your love. Uh, we want to pray for healing for our, our Muslim brothers and sisters who have lost loved ones who are experiencing just the worst kind of, of suffering, uh, of uh, injustice and pain and loss. Um, God, we don't really have words to describe what we're feeling, but we know, um, you, we know that you, you know what pain feels like and injustice, and we, we just pray that they would feel your presence come near to them in this uh, awful time. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, you know, back to the season of Lent. We want to embrace the hard parts of our faith. All right, specifically during this teaching teaching series, we've been talking about hard questions of our faith. Why is there so much? You know, question we answered a few weeks ago, or at least attempted to, is why is there so much injustice and suffering in the world? Last week we talked about why have Christians done so much harm? Um, I've done many sermons where I've talked about how Christians or why Christians have done so much good in the world, but there has been harm done in 
Jesus' name. Um, we talked about that this week. Um, it's a hard question, but I feel like it's one that's filled with good news. Why believe in God in the first place? Like, what's the point of believing in God? We, you know, specifically, why believe in the God of the Bible? Like, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinitarian God that, that Christians believe in. What makes this so unique? You know, why is it so important? And I think there are strong philosophical and logical reasons to believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but I want to get, begin today with our hearts and not our minds. All right, that, that's where I want to go first. And when it comes to reasons for believing in God, a lot of people would say a lot of different things. The missionary Paul, he had a miraculous encounter with the risen Christ, and he believed. And he alludes um, to the unique variety and diverse ways that Christ meets people. And he mentions this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Although I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ... I am now free from God's law, but now under Christ's law. So as to win those not having, to the, ha, not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. And Jesus gives examples of this throughout his ministry. It's been a while since I've counted this, but I know that Jesus healed multiple blind people, in the four gospel accounts, each healing, he used a, <laughs> each healing he used a different method of healing. And there's something there that Paul alludes to it. Jesus gives us hints of this, that Paul and Christ, when we eat, we are alluding to the fact that we each have unique and deeply personal encounters with Christ. And it's never the same for, for uh, or it's always different for each person. So, I've had the blessing of being raised in a Christian home with the very Christ-like parents. My grandparents were Christian missionaries in South Africa. My mom grew up in South Africa. I was born into this. All right? Being a Christian and like believing in God is a generational part of my story. So I don't know what it's like to not believe. I've never experienced that. I do know what it's like to question what I believe, because I've done a lot of that. I've questioned deeply why I believe in God, specifically the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of the Christian faith. What's the point? What makes Christ unique? Why believe in him? I've, I've lost count of the number of questions or the types of questions I've asked of him, but I'll, I'll bet each of us could, could, some, could come up with something unique and personal about our connection or encounter with Christ. So that said, maybe one of the reasons I give today will be personal. If you don't believe, I hope that it Today would spark some curiosity. If you do believe, maybe it's time to pause and remember and also grow and expand because Christ is never done with our hearts and our minds. They are in a constant state of renewal when we are with him. And I pray that would not only continue today, but going forward. So I want to begin reason number one. I'm going to introduce this reason. I'm going to actually have C.S. Lewis introduce the reason to believe in God. He was a former atheist. So he knows what it's like to not believe. And he became a Christian. And he said, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. 
the Christian who has a bent toward skepticism, me, I would say God gives life full meaning. All right, I, I would add to what Lewis talks about there. And I add the word full because I actually think you can find meaning in life without God. I would contend it's not fully realized meaning. So imagine your life, well, it's not really, you don't have to imagine this, it just is. Your life is a story, and you get one chance at it to write this story, to live this story. And I think most, if not all of us, love a good story, whether it's a movie, a book, a documentary. Uh, we've, all, you know, we've probably all experienced those like, whoa, moments, like where you're reading a book, and something shocks you so much that you have to like pause and like set it down and kind of like, whoa, that was an incredible twist or turn or conclusion or whatever. Or in a movie, you know, when you're in the theater or you're watching something at home and there's that awesome movie that's got a twist at the end or something that's unexpected and you're like, whoa, we love that. All right, we love to experience a good movie or a good book and then all of a sudden it gets better. All right, there has more meaning to it um, at the end of something. I'm going to use an old movie as an example because I don't want to spoil anything that's recent if you haven't seen it. This one's like 30 years old, and I've talked about it before, but it's one of my all-time favorite movies. It's called Field of Dreams. It's based on a a story written by W.P. Kinsella. I'm an English nerd. I read the story back in the day. I watched the movie. I love it. So Ray Kinsella is a farmer that lives in Iowa. He's married. He has a daughter. Um, He's a former hippie who has this uh, he, he alludes to this strained relationship he has with his father, or had with his father. His father has passed away. His father was a professional baseball player. Ray is a farmer. He's got a cornfield. He's out in the cornfield one night, and he hears a voice. And if you've seen the movie, you know what the voice says. If you build it, he will come. And then Ray sees a vision of a baseball field, and then a famous baseball player that's passed away. He played back in like the, the teens and the early 20s named Shoeless Joe Jackson. And Ray thinks, if I plow down my corn and build that field, Joe Jackson will come. And so he proceeds to do that, and Joe Jackson comes. But the story's not over. Ray continues to hear this voice, and the voice keeps giving these cryptic messages that Ray is guessing at, and he's like, okay, I guess I'll do this. And he does it, and it works, and another miracle happens. And there's a few of these instances, and it leads up to the very end of the movie where you're looking at this, and he's got, like, he's got his arm around his wife, and his daughter's playing, and really great things have happened. And you're like, this is a really great movie. But there's one player left on the field, and he takes off his catcher's mask, and Ray's like, oh, my God. And it's his dad. And then he has this like really incredible moment where him and his dad speak to each other with warm words, and they have a catch. And that's the end of the movie. The, the camera pans away as him and his dad are just playing catch. And all this healing takes place. And like the last two minutes of the movie, and every time I watch it, it gets a little dusty in my house. Like my eyes start to like water up a little bit. I don't know what happens. But it never gets old to see just that sudden moment at the end where healing takes place. And it makes me think about that is how our lives are without Christ. All right, great things can happen. Life has meaning. Good, healthy relationships are possible, but when we encounter Christ and receive his love, it not only enhances what good things we're experiencing in our life, it heals wounds that cannot be healed. Christ can reach places no one else, no other entity can reach. So that's why I follow him. He gives perspective we could never see on our own, and it's a meaning, um, and it's not, it's deeply personal, but it goes beyond personal. Um, your love for and concern for others will grow. It's already there. Whatever you have, whatever love you have for other people, 
Christ will pour gas on that fire. And he talks about this as a natural effect. In Matthew 22, one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. He's a teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. And we need to note that the Greek word for love that Jesus uses here, because we only have one word for love in English. All right, there's six or seven Greek words. I can't remember which, uh, which number, but there's a lot of them. And the one he's using in this passage is agape. And it's the same love, the same word that describes Jesus on the cross, on the crucifixion. It is the pinnacle of love. It is the ultimate sacrificial love. And he's saying, you have that. When you love God, you will have that kind of love for other people. That's what's possible with Christ. And that's the kind of love, like when we talk about what we saw in the news this weekend with New Zealand, you're like, that, that's the kind of love the world needs. It needs that kind of antidote to the hate and to the xenophobia that we see in, that playing itself out in other parts of the world and in our, in our own backyard. The second reason that I thought of when it comes to, you know, why should we believe in God? What's the point? God gives us freedom. In John 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The freedom is there for reception. It's always there. And it seems to be a slow journey of realization with Christ as he's leading us into this eternal reality of freedom. Some of us, or some of this freedom, you're going to have the opportunity to experience in this lifetime. You will be set free from wounds or brokenness or sin, uh, bad habits. You, You will experience that, but it won't be completed until he returns. So whether it's now or in the end, I think one of the key aspects, key reasons for believing in God is freedom, and freedom from the opposite of truth, which is lies. So like one example of the now, of how I've experienced freedom, Uh, and again, remember, this is deeply personal and unique, so you have to think of, okay, how have I experienced freedom because of a truth that God relayed that replaced the lie that I'd come to believe. So a few years ago, I slowly became aware of like this crippling lie that I'd believed about myself since childhood. I'm naturally confident but there was this like shadow self that would like pop up from time to time. Um, it was almost like Satan had whispered this lie into my ears for years through the mouths of other people. And the lie was basically, you're not good enough. And I developed like this chip on my shoulder, this inferiority complex. And I didn't really even know it was there until God kind of started drawing me out of that. He started whispering this truth through powerful friendships, through people actually praying over me, uh, through counseling, through words my wife shared to me, ultimately culminated with, um, we're on a beach vacation, and Carrie's reading this book, and she's like a weepy mess on the beach, and I'm like, how are you crying out here? This is wonderful. Like, what's sad? And it's this book, and she's like, you have to read this book. She's literally never said that to me before or since. That sentence will never come out of her mouth. You should read this book. It was the only time she's ever done it. I'm like, wow, I I guess I should read that book if you're recommending it. And I read the book. It was great. Um, Didn't really understand right away why I read it. And then um, I'm driving down the road one day, 
I'm, I'm headed up 29 towards four corners. I pass the beltway, and there's a line from the book. I was asking God, like, what's the truth? Like, I know what the lie is. What are you trying to say to me? And he, he put that sentence from this book in my head. And, he's, and it, it, the sentence is, you are my beloved. And that was the truth. And it was like, oh. Like, it was a very spiritual moment for me. No one else was in the car. It was just me. But I felt immense freedom from that moment. Um, have you asked God to reveal the lines you've come to believe? All right, what, why believe in God? Because he can replace those lies with truth. In the words of Francis Buford, uh, he, he mentions guilt, and he says, guilt gets terrible press now. As if the word or the emotion that's attached to guilt is like a false signal. It's like something that's meant to be shooed away. Like, no, no, get, we don't need to feel guilty. So two and a half centuries ago, um, there were some famous words written that it, it, it could be said, maybe it's the most famous song of all time. It seems like everybody knows it. Um, the first two lines start go like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Maybe the most famous hymn <clears throat> ever. Um, but when we think about that word wretch, we can tell when we read that in the 21st century, that seems dated to us. That seems harsh. Like wretch? That's what you're calling yourself? All right, those of us who have experienced any kind of taste of like self-help, you're like, no, don't call yourself wretch. Uh, it's strong. Um, no, you're not a wretch. She's, I'm not a wretch. Until we consider the author and the circumstances that surrounded these words. These words were penned by a man named John Newton. He was an 18th century slave trader. All right, he made his living transporting cargoes of kidnapped human beings in conditions of suffering and squalor to places where they would be ripped apart forever from their families, from their spouses, and from their kids to serve a life as objects, right, as property sold and brutalized. At that time, it was a respectable living. It's totally legal to do what he was doing. Right, now we know John Newton wasn't just a wretch. He was an atrocity of a human being. We think about those words, you're like, no, that's not strong enough, John. Keep going. All right, I can think of a few more words to describe you as a person. So what's interesting and I think fascinating about the words he wrote is that he wrote these words before he gave up slave trading. He kept doing it. He wrote these words before he realized the worst of his sins. That was his occupation. So, but his guilt wouldn't leave him. It just hung there. Um, amazing grace, those words he wrote, was the beginning of his awakening. And he would eventually give up the trade, and he would spend his, the last years of his life campaigning against it. So this is an extreme example here. But I know we can all think of words or actions. I know I can, in which I treated someone poorly. Uh, I, I demeaned their humanity with the smallest slight, at least to me it was small, or teasing. Uh, you know, words alone can rip people's hearts apart. And guilt is an instrument of self-discovery. And I, I'm, we're talking all about this guilt because we're all guilty of something. Culture teaches us a few lies about guilt. One of the more recent popular lies about guilt is that we shouldn't feel it. You know, kind of like you be you, damn the consequences. Just roll. That's postmodernism. And that's, that is kind of where we're headed as a culture. All right, another popular myth 
maybe the most popular ever, um, specifically over the last few hundred years, is that we should feel guilt, but we can manage it. Like we can course correct through like humanistic endeavors. We can create our own moral code or find a philosophy or moral code or law to follow. All right. One that's got some really good restrictions. All right. Uh, and you're going to feel empowered. I mean, this is kind of the essence of Buddhism. That's why Buddhism is one of the more popular growing religions in the U.S. Because it's something you can control. All right. This is a myth that's tied to modernism, like the age of enlightenment. Like we can handle, I, I think, therefore I am. Like we can handle whatever comes our way as long as we have something to adhere to, a code, a morality. The problem is it's stifling, it's burdensome, it's crippling, and it's impossible. All right? We can't live like that. We should feel guilt because we are imperfect. Guilt can be very healthy, but when we approach Christ with guilt, and this is a reason we need him and believe in him, rather than the like, postmodern arrogant, like you be you and don't worry about it, or the crippling burdensome of legalism, of like managing sin or managing guilt or controlling it, God leads us to a third way. He gives us forgiveness. His forgiveness makes space for us to acknowledge our guilt while leading us away from restrictions and laws that are impossible to follow. I love the message version of John 3.16, maybe the most popular like gospel verse of all time. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why. So that no one need to be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. You have been acquitted. Forgiveness has been offered. God loves us that much. And it could be said, I, I, I haven't heard a good argument against this. It could be said that, the, that love is the one law we are all capable of following instinctively. It's, it's easy to love all right, for, for the beginnings of that to happen. It's what makes Jesus Christ truly unique. It's what separates him from every other philosophy and religion in the world. It's not based on code or morality or law or control. It is based on love. And it is unique to Christ. And it's, again, another reason I follow him. But for the nerds in the room, I know we need at least like one logical reason to, be, to believe in God. All right, I know we're talking about all this spiritual stuff. Um, I, I was thinking about uh, a book I read and then looked up a, a quote from him. And there's actually a video of it, uh, of Francis Collins, local guy, uh, geneticist, the director of uh, NIH. And he just has a two-minute quote video that I want to show you here just about um, kind of why he believes in God and, and, and one particular reason we're going to talk about briefly. My study of genetics certainly tells me incontrovertibly that Darwin was right uh, about the nature of how living things have arrived on the scene by descent from a common ancestor under the influence of natural selection over very long periods of time. Darwin uh, was amazingly uh, insightful given how limited the molecular information he had was. Essentially, it didn't exist. Uh, now, with the digital code of DNA, we have the best possible proof of Darwin's theory that he could have imagined. So that certainly tells me something about the nature of living things. 
but it actually adds to my sense uh, that this is an answer to a how question, and it leaves the why question still hanging in the air. Other aspects of our universe, I think also uh, for me, as for Einstein, uh, raise questions about the possibility of an intelligence uh, behind all of this. Uh, why is it, for instance, that the constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy, like the gravitational constant, for instance, have precisely the value that they have to in order for there to be any complexity at all in the universe? That is fairly breathtaking, and it's lack of probability of ever having happened, and it does make you think that a mind might have been involved uh, in setting the stage. At the same time, uh, that does not imply necessarily that that mind is controlling uh, the specific manipulations uh, of things that are going on in the natural world. In fact, I would very much resist that idea. I think the laws of nature potentially could be the product of a mind. I think that's a defensible perspective. But once those laws are in place, then I think nature goes on and science has the chance to be able to perceive how that works and what its consequences are. I, you should watch that like 10 times. That is just dripping with truth and with gospel. I've watched it like five times. God gives order. That's a reason we believe in him. That's what essentially I'm summing up that Collins said. God gives order. Mathematical physicist, professor, and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne wrote in his book's conclusion, God's existence makes sense of many aspects of our knowledge and experience. The order and fruitfulness of the physical world, the multi-layered character of reality, the almost universal human experiences of worship and hope, the phenomenon of Jesus Christ, including his resurrection. In his book, he cites numerous examples all right, from science and theology. He calls them cousins in the great search for faith and understanding. And faith and understanding are present in both worlds. All right, whether it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ in theology or the worlds of cosmology and evolutionary biology in science, there's good evidence, although it's limited, that all of these exist and occur and are in harmony with one another. You can see the order. Greg Boyd wrote, all people believe some sort of force made this earth, cosmos, humanity, etc., believe it caused this to happen. I'm just trying to inquire into what this force must be like, since in an effect can't be greater than its cause, doesn't the fact that humans, the effect, are personal mean that the cause must also be personal? And I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. That's good philosophy. So I want to challenge you as we close today to expand on the reasons I discussed. Um, make this personal to you. So for, I would encourage you to find some time to write down why you believe in God I shared a couple of reasons today that I, why I believe in God. Why do you believe in God? What does he mean to you? And if you don't believe in God, or something sim do something similar. Remind yourself of your unbelief and why you don't believe. In either case, I really think something special will happen. When we start to actually pause and think hard and ask hard questions about what we've come to believe, it can strengthen us. I believe that's where special, sacred, miraculous things can happen. And today we're not going to close with a song. Uh, I want to close with a challenge and then a prayer. Um, I, I alluded to it, but I just spent the last 25 minutes or so trying to discern the answer to why believe in God. And at his core, God is relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a, the
the Greek word for this is called perichoresis, which it means mutual indwelling. Uh, it, it's a word that means incredible intimacy and closeness and proximity. That's God. And it, out of this belief that God is deeply personal and relational and restore, uh, we, we organize ourselves around something new that we're launching called Neighborhood Collectives. These gatherings are going to take place twice a month for like seven to eight gatherings. Then we're going to take a break and then we're going to do it again. But it's a time for you to be super intentional with your geographic and relational connections. Uh, we're praying for four collectives to launch this spring. Each collective needs to have a group of hosts, preferably like three households uh, is what we're hoping for, who can rotate hosting. Content and support will be provided by restored staff and pastors. Hosts will create a meal, lead a discussion, pray. All right, neighbor collectives will not will be a blessing to you, but they will also be a blessing to people uh, it allow us the opportunity to extend um, the love and the truth of Christ to newcomers, to neighbors, to people we know that we're in relationship with. We're going to be launching these April 21st, so if you're interested in hosting or teaming up with a few other people to host, let us know. But it's something we're praying for, and I want to close in prayer over that today before we, before we dismiss.